This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again. I've got a special guest for you today. This guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's the fifth largest owner of mobile home parks in the country. He has over 250 parks in 25 states, decades of experience. Just a great guest here today. Lucky to have him. Please help me welcome Frank Rolf. Frank, thanks for being on here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, Frank, I think a lot of people who are listening today probably know who you are, but maybe if you could give us a, a quick introduction of you know, your background and then how you sure. got into space and, and how you take it from there. Okay. Well, I got into mobile home parks accidentally, as most people do. Uh, so I went to Stanford University, got a degree in economics, got out of here early, was going to write a, a business school application, had to start a business. That's what you did back in those days, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Started a billboard company, uh, never went to business school, rode that thing for 14 years, sold it to a public company, and then was trying to come up with a new idea, a new, something, something new to focus on. I had built two billboards on a mobile home park called Glen Haven in Dallas. Uh, so I had familiarity from that perspective. I'd done some favors from, for the owner in the past, mainly knocking on the door of the manager to see why he wouldn't answer the phone. And I also knew from supply and demand of economics that I never saw MH zoning in Dallas. So therefore I knew that was special. So called the guy up and he in one phone call sold it to me saying he would take uh, $10,000 down on a $400,000 purchase and he'd carry $390,000 for 30 years. And that's, and that's what launched me into the industry. That's great. I actually, I did get a chance to see Glen Haven on one of your, your tours there with your mobile home university club. And yeah. that was great. And I, I know from hearing you talk about it on your podcast in the past, that deal had a lot of hair on it. And one of the, it was a very hairy deal. Were, and even, even to this day, it definitely, I, you've seen it. It still yes. has quite a bit of hair on it. Yes. It's, uh, it was definitely very dense. And I think the trash trucks can't even get through kind of the Chewbacca of hairy deals. Yes. Yeah. So that's one thing I'd like to share with people is any tips or wisdom you can give as far as the school hard knocks or lessons you've learned that one. I know you learned a lot of lessons is, is is that park a good example to share some tips with or maybe another one that you can, you know, I, I think that's a good example. And, you know, I, I would hearken back to the uh, book. If you have not read it, it's available by Sam Zell called it by being too subtle and basically success or failure often is about having a realistic expectation on risk and reward. So Glenhaven, I didn't know what I was doing. It had phenomenal amounts of risk, which was inherent in it, which I didn't know it had master metered, uh, gas and master metered electric and a horrible client base and a difficult location. And it was flowing $2,000 a month negative when I bought it. But uh, I lucked out in that case because in the end, the, the profit potential was there, even though I didn't even know, know what it was when I bought it. Uh, but over and over again, on all these turnaround deals we've done, the over, overriding thing is you have to be able to pick your battles wisely. You want to pick things that for the amount of risk and effort you do in the turnaround, you have to make a huge amount of money. Uh, you know, that's Zell's formula. So if you have high, high risk, low reward, you should never do it. If you have uh, high risk and, and high reward, then you might do it. And of course, if you have a low risk and high reward, you always do it. So Gledhaven Glen, fortunately lucked out, but it could have been a horrible story had, had it, it not had the profit potential. 
Yeah, and I remember that one in particular. And there's still, I think there's still Master Meter Electric to this day, which is obviously a there is Master Meter Electric issue. to this day. Although I did get the uh, Master Meter gas solution solved before the next guy bought it, I put in propane tanks. So I, I dropped it to only one of two Master Metered utilities. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you switch the utilities over to a better system, you're you're doing value add, and that's when you get paid. Is when you do you correct. Add value. That is exactly correct. Yeah. And I, I read Sam's book based on your recommendation, and one of my favorite things in that book is that he says. Every day you don't sell an asset for a price somebody will pay you for it, you yeah, bought it. That's I, exactly I, I've sold I've sold like five of my parks in the last two and a half years based on that. We're like, I, I like the business. I'm bullish on, bullish on the business. I have some parks I want to buy and hold, but there were yep. some of those. I'm like, you know, it's just, it's worth more to the other guy than it is to me. So yep. I made a decision to, to let him go. And yep. some of those were able to do the same you know, thing. retain. Yep. A, Absolutely you know, correct. I know you sold a lot of your portfolio, your portfolio as well, but yes, you got a lot left. Have. What does what uh, your day-to-day -day look like at this point? I know you do a lot of windshield time driving your parks. Yeah, you know, my day-to-day -day day is odd. Yeah, I, I float around a lot. So what I do is I'm very old school. So every night before the next day, I take a legal pad. I title it with the date of, of tomorrow. I then put on well, the first category says trips. And the second category says calls. I put down everything I need to do that day and every call I need to make that day. And then to get really old school on you, I take a highlighter and I highlight the essential must do without fail items in both categories. And that sets about my day. Once I've completed the yeah. yellow highlighted, I move to the next one down, uh, constantly multitasking. Often I'm on the phone while I'm doing the other items on it. And then at the end of the day, I, uh, I evaluate what I got done and I do it all over again for the next day. I know people listening, particularly millennial people will say, my God, that's antiquated and stupid. <laughs> But that's the only way I know how to do it because I was traditionally trained on daytimers before the internet existed. So I can't get over that habit. That's great. I do this. I do a similar thing, and my, my whole team does. And you've probably read the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller. And there's it's similar to kind of like Lee Ivy and um, it wasn't Rockefeller. It was um, Charles Schwab, the one that worked for Rockefeller. Right. He kind of came up with I think that system and or similar system. And I think time management is is crucial, and especially when you got a bunch of balls in the air like I know you do. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. What, what is at this point, what do you say is the best part of your job? I know you've got operations, but you also have, a, I think, the, the number one podcast, the number one university for this industry. So you're obviously an educator, like the yeah. public speaking. Um, is that your favorite piece or you like doing operations? No, actually, by, by the be best part of owning mobile home parks, particularly turnaround deals, is when you visit them after they're fixed. And, and uh, at that moment, when they suddenly... Uh, you know, gush forward pride of ownership, which it's not, not always the end of the movie, but you buy a real troubled property and you establish law and order and you start doing big physical improvements. And then at some point in the movie, you notice the residents are, are cleaning up their stuff, painting their home, putting in carports, and you know that you've won. It's kind of like in those, in those war movies, right? You know, you know that yeah. there's the, the extreme moment of battle where you blow up the German emplacement. And even though there's still some snipers and things around, you know that you've effectively won. Uh, that's, that's the best moment. I was in one of our properties recently out in Decatur, Illinois, one of the worst turnarounds we've ever done. And I was shocked to see someone come out of a home uh, wearing a blue button-down shirt, khaki pants, and Sperry Topsiders. And I was trying to figure wow. my brain, man, I've won this battle because I've got the L.L. Bean catalog coming no out of lot number 14. And so that, that made me feel good because then I knew I'd made money because clearly the property is a whole different value perspective when I've got the L.L. Bean guy coming out of the home as opposed to the, 
the person who's, you know, uh, on heroin or something. Yeah, and Decatur, I, I'm from Quincy, Illinois. We used to play football against Decatur, and that was the year I was in high school was the year there was this big national fight between, I think it was a black family and a white family during the game, and it was a huge, like, national spectacle, and it was a big deal. So I, Decatur got a bad reputation, so you know when, you, when you're going there – you're, you're, well, taking, you're taking some arrows. You know, uh, Decatur, Decatur always makes these lists of America's most declining cities, right? Yeah. And I don't really know why that is because I go there and it doesn't look any more declining than any, about any other American city, but it's a testament to the need for affordable housing, right? Because we've sold a ton of homes in there, brought in a ton of people in there. And, but on the surface, every other business in America would look at Decatur at a 5,000 foot elevation and say, oh my gosh, you know, it had its heyday in like 1960 or something. Right. But uh, it's still doing good for mobile home parks. Yeah, good. Uh, tell me again, if you can share maybe details of that, uh, maybe not the Decatur deal, but one of them where you can, you kind of talk a little bit about Glenhaven. I mean, how do you, how do you yeah. tackle, how do you tackle a deal when you go in? And I know you've, I also want to cover kind of your dials in the cockpit. I know you've sure. talked about those before that are key to operations is, operations yeah. is key to the business, obviously. Well, it, it, you know, Glenhaven, the pivotal moment on that was when I got it from a negative to a break even on cash flow. Uh, and that deal, you know, I probably have talked about it too much and done, done too much. So let me give you a modern one, okay. a, a newer one. All right. The, uh, the park that we just sold in Austin called North Lamar. It's interesting because I can give the numbers on it because all other properties, when we sell them, we don't give out the numbers because of property tax. But in that case, they were so stupid that they published in the Austin Statesman the price, which makes no sense because Texas is one of the highest property tax states in the United States. Uh, we bought that deal, which was so horribly mismanaged for a little over $2 million. We bought it back in about 2015-ish, I believe, 15, 16, somewhere in there. And it was an absolute disaster. Uh, the mom and pop had they had no business sense no pride of ownership skills nothing so basically everyone was living in there in the most deplorable conditions and and the city of austin didn't do anyone any favor allowing it to exist like it did so we went in and we took away you know tons of roll-off dumpsters of debris we redid the roads changed the signage the whole deal then started raising rents and we got a lot of flack for it uh, we were in the media there constantly for raising rents, but the problem was when we bought it, it was at 390, all bills paid, wow. and the market in Austin is about 650, no bills paid. Wow. So over a progression of years, we got the rent up to about 580, not including water sewer, uh, and then sold it to the residents for 6.2 million dollars, I believe, wow. and. Again, it, it, it's, uh, it's just your typical trailer park turnaround story. Now that one had a bigger ending because that one, uh, the, rent, the rents could be pushed more than normal. You're talking, you know, by the time that park is done, the rents will have effectively doubled. Um, but what on top of, cap, of that- What kind of cap rate did that sell on? It sold like, at a, a ridiculous cap rate, one yeah. that can't be calculated using any form of American mathematical <laughs> calculator. It's, yeah. Uh, if you get a telescope out and uh, you might be able to see the cap rate somewhere in the stars. Uh, the problem was that, you know, Austin is considered a hot market. Right. When you have hot markets, people sometimes get carried away with the, with the heat. But that one also had the additional attribute. It was a political issue because Austin was trying to portray themselves as the, as the person who loves all people, rich and poor. And they found it to be very important that the residents could buy the property from us. So it was actually 
purchased by the residents as what's called an ROC or resident owned community transaction. And Austin threw in, I think $2 million grant to uh, make the deal happen on top of that. So it's very, it's very odd. It, sh it shows the, the new sensibility about affordable housing, I guess, but also the fact that it, it, in, in today's American political world, if you are on the right side of some mega trend, crazy stuff happens. And did the city throw in the grant as essentially equity? Because you, I assume you had to get a non-recourse loan with that diverse buyer group and you needed- Yeah, to actually, no, it's a recourse loan. The, the really? way it works is, yeah, these ROC deals are fascinating. What you have is you have a series of nonprofits like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and these people will co-sign notes at full recourse wow. if they feel you aren't going to default on it. So they're the backbone of these transactions. There's not a lot done. There's about one done every month in the U.S. Okay. And- uh, you know, the, the residents have to organize, they have to elect officers, they have to vote to buy it, but they don't really buy it because they don't actually have any money and they don't right. put any money into it. The money that's put into it is done by nonprofits who are trying to, you know, make, make everything possible for them. So they're very, they're very strange transactions. And, and uh, you know, we've done three of those to date uh, and there's nothing wrong with them, but they do take a long time. They're very, the, contrary to what people think, they're very complicated. It's not as easy as it would appear. It, I think it seems like it'd be complicated. I mean, that's, you're basically, you're always kind of running your own little city when you have a mobile home park, but in this case, you're like running a city and you hand it over to the populace to vote their own mayor. Well, you, you, know, you know, what's, what's interesting is a guy called me recently. He was trying to buy a property or he had it under contract to buy an estate that has a uh, first right of refusal. And lo and behold, ROC <laughs> wants to do ROC deal on it. And the way those deals work, and I told the guy, don't worry, it probably won't work. And I was exactly correct because most of the time the residents vote not to buy the property. So they organize them, they elect officers, they have a popular vote. And, and I don't understand it, but in many of these transactions, right off the bat, they die because the residents vote they don't want to buy it. And I think they vote they don't want to buy it because I think they don't actually understand what it even means. But that happens a lot. We've, we've had many failed attempts as well. And, and often it, it comes down to just the residents have no interest in actually buying it. Really? It's interesting. I guess it makes sense. It's a no, it really doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't actually make I mean, it doesn't sense. make sense they won't buy it, but it makes sense that they can't figure it out because it's, you know, That's that you've, part got a team, you've got a team full of advisors and lawyers and experience and financiers. That Correct. I think, I think it frightens them that they don't understand the ramifications of it. Right. Well, Frank, can you can you dive in a little bit on on operational efficiency? I know that you've got you've got such a big team. I've been to your your uh -huh. in Colorado and seen kind of the, the enterprise you've got in different lanes. But really, there as as the, from the small owner, the, the the owner that has two, three, five parts, you can't afford mm -hmm. to have a whole team. So you got to watch the operations, watch the money yourself. What tips can you have? And you've got you know, your, your key points that you, you've touched on before, but sure. for the audience here, if you could highlight those, that'd be great. Yeah. For, first thing I would point out to people is whether you have one park, which is how I started and Dave started, or five, which we both had, and then up now to 200, it, it's the same process with a, a few layer changes. So our most important person is the community manager. We call them the CM, people on the field. But then we group every handful of CMs, typically five CMs, sometimes 10 CMs under an, another level of management called the district manager. And the district manager's job is just to hire, train, supervise, and or fire those community managers. Because at some point it would outstrip your own ability as the owner to do that. Right. Then if you're big enough, you have collections of district managers that fall under what we call regional vice presidents or RVPs. But it all is the same as when we started on our very first park with that CM. It's just a question of who 
manages the CM. That's the only thing that really changes. And when we're managing these things, there's basically five, five gauges on our dashboard, just like your car has gauges on it. Your car probably shows how much gas you have, speed, RPM. Uh, the park business, you can also dil distill down to basically five gauges. The first, the big gauge, of course, is collections because the residents, uh, you know, they're, we're in the affordable housing space, so they don't have a lot of money. So you have to collect the money from them sometimes without them being very happy about that concept. So collections is key. Uh, another one that's key is water sewer, which people would not realize that's our single largest cost item. Uh, in fact, we have a weekly conference call with our water sewer team. We actually have a water sewer team and we're constantly looking for leaks, uh, meter malfunctions, all kinds of stuff like that. So that, cause that's our biggest line item. There's more money at stake in water sewer than almost all our other expenses combined. Another one is our occupancy because, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to fill. We like to buy broken parks and fix them. So we're always trying to fill them up. Right. Uh, the, the next one is property condition. That's just making sure the property looks its best because that gives me a better chance of selling or renting homes, retaining customers, keeping the city happy, making the bank happy, making the appraiser happy, making a future buyer happy. And then finally, what we call BAD or budget actual difference. That's a uh, monthly exercise where we look at the budget how we performed, what we did better, what we did worse, not worrying about the ones we did better on, just the ones we did worse on. Why are we worse? Trying to figure out what happens. Sometimes we're worse because we did good. For example, if I fill a bunch of lots, my water sewer cost or other costs may go up because I got more people, right? right? And I will initially think, uh-oh, I got a leak. Well, no, wait, nope, nope, I brought people in, right? So, so sometimes it's that, but then sometimes it's a simple fact we're not doing as good as we could on selling homes, renting homes, or whatever the case may be. And then you figure out your plan, like what am I going to do to change this? It's one thing to acknowledge it, but what am I going to do to actually physically make this change? And then you try to make the change. Makes sense. I've, I've, I've listened to that before. And I think my favorite of those is that BAD. And the, one of the challenges I feel, I feel like I've had with it is when you're in the middle of a major turnaround, it's like, man, I'm bleeding money. Like, oh, because I've already put in the next five concrete pads. I've already hired the install guy. I don't have the houses sold yet. So, but, but it, so that's a, it's a kind of an enlightening exercise that you look at it and you're like, okay, now I know, like in that example, kind of like your water issue, like the money's supposed to be going out at the moment. I'm going to say it's an investment. The money's going to be coming back in when I get the house on there, I get the house rented or sold. Is there, do you modify, I know you, you have some parks that have already kind of become stabilized or do you yep. modify how you, you look at all that based on the, the business plan, if you will? I mean, if you've got a major turnaround, you're probably not going to be cash flowing in the, in the, in the short run. Well, you, you have to. In other words, uh, I, would, I wouldn't buy a property that can't pay its own way unless it's an extreme deal where we're buying it for a penny on the dollar as a complete disaster and then trying to bring it back to life. But if we're not trying to you know, hit it with electrical paddles to make its heart start again, <laughs> Uh, we're trying to buy it at a reasonable cap rate. Now, the cap rate may be predicated on our first rent increase or some other assumption. So, I mean, we've bought properties. Look at the one in Austin is a perfect example. No one would have bought that park. We bought that park at a, I want to say a, a four cap or something. Wow. Uh, so, it's totally predicated on getting the rents up. And so, oftentimes, we'll look at that kind of stuff. But you know, the one thing I see people do that you don't want to get in the mindset of doing that's that's buying something where you have to do all the stuff just to get it back to what you paid for it. So we, we pass on those deals all the time. So some guy comes to us and says, yeah, here's my deal. I'm a hundred bucks under market and give me a four cap. And you say, well, let me, if I raise around a hundred, I'm only at a six cap or a seven cap. Why the heck would I even do it? That a lot of times the seller wants you 
to give them the value for what they didn't do yet. And that it kind of irks them. I mean, I don't even know why a, a property would tell you, yeah, I'm $200 under market. That doesn't mean anything to me. You know, raise your rent. Don't tell me about I, it. I literally had it. I was on site an hour ago in a park and scrambled back home here. To, and I, the guy just told me that, he goes, yeah, I'm 150 below market. I'm like, okay. He goes, yeah, so this is going to be worth, and he threw out some big number. You're worth 14 million when you're done. It's, I want 3 million now. And I'm just like, how'd you come up with the valuation? I'm just trying to understand your method. And yeah. I'm getting two. And you're at yeah. three, it's kind of a big delta. He said, well, there's a lot of upside. I'm like, yeah, that's my upside if I can carry out a successful business plan and, and sign a note and all those other yep. stuff. It's not, it's not gonna yep. raise, it's not gonna bank. But yep. yeah, it always back to Sam Zell's formula, right? I mean, if, you, if you're gonna take risk in life, you gotta have reward for the risk. And if you wanna do really low risk deals like ELS does these days where they're buying stuff that's completely stabilized on, on the coast, the only, probably their biggest risk is a weather event you know, but they only pay out like a 3% dividend. So they, they buy on very, very narrow spreads. And you might say, well, how do they make any money with that? Well, I don't actually know myself, uh, other than the fact that the American investor, stock investor is not sometimes the brightest light bulb. And uh, so I don't know why, I mean, I can't understand Tesla and many things in life, but other than those kinds of buyers, yeah, you have to make money with your stuff. You can't buy stuff and break even and then dream of it going up just to get back to what you paid. Right. And I think the REITs, I always feel like they just have, they're on a different ball game because they have such a different cost of capital that their investors are, you know, satisfied getting a 3% return. We're like, I can't raise capital and give somebody a three pref, let even, let alone even 3% all in just doesn't, doesn't really make well, sense. You know, to do, to, to do a three is kind of odd because see, if, if you're going to do a three, they, they can buy it at a three cap and then they can finance some of this stuff now at a two point something. So they would be if, in all cash, they could do a three. And then they have a slight bit of leverage. So they might even get a little more than that. But, you know, you can't make any big money with that. That's, again, that, that then goes back to me to a whole risk reward. Those are huge enterprises. As, as, as I'm sure you're aware, running mobile home parks is not a glamour business. It's not right. something that people will do for free. Right. So, you know, I don't know why they, I guess I don't understand why they allow themselves to do it at that, those kind of low margins. And, and I mean, uh, again, they've done famously well. Stocks have done extremely well here. One of the best runs of any of the REITs over the last last couple wow. of years now. So I can't say anything wrong. They're all great operators, but it, it kind of seems like they, they, they should probably set some benchmark, maybe a little higher than where they're at. Just a little. I mean, just try, try and get a 5% cash on cash or something would be. I don't, I don't yeah, I don't get it there. They, they must be smarter than me. I just don't know how yet because they're doing we, something. We will all find out in the end. Yes, exactly. And Frank, one more topic before I, before I let you go. What is, what is your opinion on the current market? I mean, I'm seeing what I feel like pricing is getting crazy in a lot of circumstances, but I've only been doing this for six or seven years. You've been around a lot longer. You've seen ebbs and flows in the recessions. Yep. What is your, what are your macroeconomic views on the here, 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 are my, here are my views. All right. I get the same question. Uh, first off, I've seen true cap rate compression with my own eyes. I saw it from the period of about 2004, right up to the 2007 uh, collapse and then the great, the great recession. And when, when you have true cap rate compression, the cap rates fall below the interest rates. And that's when I knew with my early portfolio, it was time to sell because cap rates were at four but no, loans were at five and six. Who buys that, yeah. right? It's like a no-brainer. It's absolutely crazy. I, I was doing deals. I sold one property where the appraisal didn't make, so the guy put in the money, the, to, the differential between the appraisal and the purchase price. Any, any logical buyer would have walked that deal, right, and right. said, wait, 
the appraisal is this much under, I can't do it. But that was, that was the go-go year. So I've seen go-go. We're not in go-go right now because there's still some restrictors on the, on, on the engine and that's the lending community. So, you know, the, the days of go-go lending haven't returned in that manner for our industry, but yet you are going to see lower cap rates on the, and the high-end institutional stuff. And that's simply because you have so many institutional buyers chasing the 100 plus or more specifically the 200 plus communities that they're, they're driving those prices up through simple supply and demand. So I see the industry's got several personalities now, right? It's, it's, become, it's become like a, a multi-personality person here. So you at the high end, on the high end properties, you've got this institutional group. And, you know, so that's one kind of pricing structure. They're buying it at, at low cap rates, but not, not compression cap rates. Then when you ditch that aside, then the normal market is kind of like it used to be. It's about three-point spread stuff. I do. I, I look at deals from people all the time doing park evaluations, and you know, uh, people are still bringing me deals that are often even ten caps and twelve caps. But if you look at where they're sourced from, they're sourced from uh, cold calling and direct mail and that type of stuff, right? So you know, the brokers are all about money, and they've kind of gravitated into the institutional space because that's where the money is, right? So it's like your, your new starting out Marcus and Melichap broker, he's doing the, you know, the 30 and 50 lot stuff, but all of the big time guys, they all want to do the, the big time stuff. Sure. So if you, you know, if you're just starting out and you talk to the brokers, they will lecture you that, Oh no, your, your expectations are terrible. Cap rates today are, you know, 5.2 or whatever the heck it is. Well, yes and no. Yeah. If you're an institutional buyer trying to spend a hundred million of capital, but not for the normal person. So, you know, I've seen, again, I've seen the same cycle before even. This is the same cycle that we saw back during the cap rate compression days that often the stuff that the brokers have uh, is priced completely separately from the rest. But, you know, you see the same thing in lot rents. I'm sure you see that on your properties. I mean, in many market where I'm in, the REITs, and I mean the actual REITs, right. UMH normally, their rents are 100 a month more than ours right, right across the street. So it's almost like we're in two completely different industries. We have nothing in common. Uh, they pay their managers probably twice what we do. Uh, it's just it's just odd. So yes, I, I, I you know the, the industry is always morphing, changing. But the biggest morph changes in what most people getting into it are not looking for, and that's that high end institutional stuff. Right. No, makes sense. Great points, Frank. I appreciate it. Well, once again, thanks for having you on. How can people get a hold of you? I mean, you're pretty much everywhere. How would you best like people to find you? You know, if you just go to mhu.com, I'm all over the darn thing. You know, that's been my hobby now for what, 10, 10, 15 years. My partner, Dave's son, Brandon, runs it all, does a great job with it. That's always the best. I mean, I'm constantly putting new articles and videos and stuff on there normally from out in the field because it entertains me. So if you go to mhu.com, you, you, you can't not find me. That's right. And I'm a MHU boot camp graduate. Are you think you're going to be back live anytime in the near future? Or are you just you know, uh, that, that's up to the United States government yeah. because the answer is we can't do it until there is a no mask mandate. We learned it the hard way. We tried to do a live event. And then the week before the live event, we were told that the era we were going to hold it was back on a shutdown. So uh, we're never doing that again. Because we then had to, we, we had to walk and pay all of the hotel and all of the other costs. No, we're not, we're not doing it again until Dr. Fossey and everybody else says you can throw your mask in the trash. 
we're fine. So uh, when that will happen, it's anybody's guess. I know, I know probably no time soon, but, but yeah, we, we, we love to meet and see people because uh, that's what we've always done historically. But until then, you know, I'm getting a lot of feedback, honestly, for people who like the virtual better than the live event, mainly because of travel cost. Yeah. And they also like having all the recordings of it. So I, I don't, we'll, we'll, we'll have to let the people, the people tell us what they want to do when the masks are off. Uh, because by then people may be just so comfortable with the idea of online, right? Online is right. taking over the world, basically. It really is. All right, Frank. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.